Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca, your host. Long time no show. Welcome back. I'm excited to be here. Just a few announcements. Number one, this is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the other podcasts on the Jewish Coffeehouse Network. Number two, if you enjoy this podcast, make sure to share this podcast with your friends and family so we can continue to grow. Number three, the throwback episode for today is birth control and Judaism. The links are in the show notes. And number four, today's episode has two topics. They obviously connect, but if you are confused about the title, I just wanted to let you know about that. And last but not least, if you would like to sponsor a future episode or an entire season, you do not have to advertise anything. It can just be simply out of the goodness of your heart because you enjoy these episodes and the work that we're doing here. Please do reach out to me and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Francisco Show, France Dance. Today with us, we have Dr. Danielle Bloom, a.k.a. my beloved aunt. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Let's start out by telling us a little bit about yourself, your religious background, your professional background, and then we'll introduce the topic. I grew up in Muncie, which I think speaks for itself very strongly. I went to Vesiakov, and then for high school, I went to a more modern Orthodox high school in Muncie. Went to Mechala, Stern. I have a master's from Tiro, and I have a doctorate from Azraeli. Congratulations on becoming a PhD. It's actually an EdD, but okay. An Eddie, thanks for clarifying. And tell us a little bit about your background. I've been a teacher. This is my 25th year working in the Jewish day school system. I've worked in schools in Israel for post-high school students. I've worked in one elementary school, actually, in a middle school, a number of high schools. And I also taught a semester in Stern College, and I teach adults in my neighborhood. And I consult in different high schools, primarily with high school teachers, primarily Chumash teachers. And the reason you requested to be on the show, even though I've been inviting you on for years already, because you know so much and you always have such interesting topics and discussions happening around your kitchen island. Tell us what finally got you onto the show. Okay, so one, one of my areas of passion is what I like to call bank of Jewish knowledge. I think there are basic things that should be common across all schools, that if you are a graduate of the Jewish day school system, I should be 100% confident that there are things that you know and skills that you possess. My journey in this topic really began 20 years ago. I was a pretty new teacher at the time. We lived in a Boise Shiva dormitory. We were the dorm parents. And my husband had dorm office hours every night. And he used to go upstairs and I would send baked goods up to the office every night. And my husband's rule was when guys would pop in, you know, there'd usually be people hanging out in the office. They would have to make a bracha out loud. And then everyone else would answer, amen. And then you could have the brownie. I remember this so vividly. I remember where I was sitting on the couch in my living room. I was talking on the old-fashioned kind of phones, a big black handheld cordless phone. And I called up to the dorm office phone, which was a, with a cord on it. And I called just to ask a question. And... As I'm 
listening, a boy walked into the office and said, oh, hey, Rebbe, can I have a brownie? So Kivi said, sure, just make a bracha out loud. So he pauses and he says, well, what bracha do I make? So Kivi said, mazonos. And this is what the boy said. Baruch Hashem, Elkeinu Melech Olam, Borei Pri Mazonos. Okay, I was sitting on the other end of the line, and I almost felt my heart stop. Here is a boy whose parents are paying tens of thousands of dollars a year in his tuition. Not only that, this was a dormitory situation, so they're sacrificing having their child at home. That's how much they want their child to have a Jewish education. And this kid not only does not know the bracha to make on a brownie, he doesn't even know how to make a bracha correctly. I was stunned. I went to find his rabbi the next day. Remember, I'm living in the school. And I told him the story. I thought he would be as upset as I was. But he said, nah, because he's from out of town. I'm sure the in-towners. No, he wasn't concerned. So I said, okay, rabbi, how about this? I'll write a quiz and I'll grade it and I'll give you back the information. All you have to do is administer it. Okay, he says, fine. I write up a chart, 10 foods or 15 foods, and they just had to fill in bracha rishona, bracha achrona. He gives it out, gives it back to me the next day. There were a couple of kids in his class who got them all right, but the average was a consistent failing grade. And failing was how many wrong? Under Meaning if, if we're going to say 15 foods and each bran has two brachos, so we're talking out of 30, they're getting quite a number of them wrong, at least 15 probably around. They were getting like 50s. If I tell you... The kids did not know the bracha to make on potato chips. They did not know the bracha to make on grapes or what bracha you make after you eat grapes or strawberries or rice or blueberries or peanuts. I'm not sure exactly why so many kids think peanuts are a shahakal, but that's a very popular answer. And after I, I did that survey there, I repeated the study. It's an anecdotal study. That means this is not real research. But it's just to alarm the adults. I just around. wanted to see. So I asked people in other schools, and typically within the same general Hashkafic demographic, we're talking, you know, I would call it Beis Yaakov on the left side or modern Orthodox on the right side. I repeated it with well over a few hundred students at this point, and it's pretty much been the results across the board. I find it alarming, and I think brachos are unique because it's not like saying the kid doesn't know what are the names of the Parshios and Chumash Barashas. That's, that's a, an important piece of knowledge that I think students should have just because this is their Torah. But if you don't know what bracha to make on peanuts, so then you're not... It's theoretical versus practical. Correct. You're not, you're not making brachos, probably. And this kind of launched me into a campaign of basic knowledge. Can our students read? I think that's a very important question. I am not a Kriya expert. Let me tell you, I don't know... I'd say you are. <laughs> I wouldn't consider, I don't have training in Kriya. You know, I, I had a meeting with an administrator who is a Kriya expert. He gave me basic guidelines of how to assess students. I think we have a real, real problem. I mean, I, I want to be very clear that I'm not here because I want to come across like I'm shooting arrows or bullets at anybody. I am here from the inside trying to pull the fire alarm. I would turn the question back on you. You are a mother who is going to invest hundreds of thousands of dollars in your student's education. What are your expectations? Would you expect that children will know how to read? Is that, is that, a, is that a legitimate? And at what age would that be? 
barring, of course, language-based learning deficits, or there are exceptions, and that has to be stated. But for any average to above average student, are there certain skills and knowledge that you as a mother would expect your child to know and have? Oh, that's a great question. And now that I have you in my life asking those questions, I'm definitely thinking about it. I did pose this question at a Shabbos table in preparation for this interview or in promotion of this interview. And they said, well, I, I didn't specify modern Orthodox or yeshivish, but um, they said, well, the modern Orthodox values maybe are more into get my kids into the top colleges, not get my kids a proper Jewish education, or maybe their standards aren't that high. First, if that's the case, it makes me very sad because, you know, I, I actually do have a story that would support that to a certain extent. I, I used to teach AP for 15 years to the same AP psychology. AP psychology, and I taught for five years, I taught the same students that I taught Chumash, maybe even more than five. I give a lot of work, as you might imagine. And I had a mother call me and she was complaining about the amount of work I was giving in the Chumash class. So I asked her, why aren't you saying this about the work I give in the psych class? I give more work in that class than in this one. And she started hemming and hawing. Well, this is about their future. So I said, I think the Chumash class is about your future too. Like don't have lower standards for your children in one area over the other. They need both. If they're going to have a strong identity, I don't believe we can have a grounding without a strong foundation. I, I really struggle. I think a lot of parents are looking at this as a social project to socialize my kid so that she'll go to, she or he will go to the right camps and the right schools and these will be their friends and this will be the life they know and that's enough. It's cultural. It's lifestyle. But it's not enough. So how do we improve this? Does every school need to create a basic knowledge campaign, class, extracurricular competitions? And we solve the problem, or do we need to really re-examine everyone's values here, parents and teachers, schools? So I think the first thing, like you said, is the values. Meaning, are we in agreement that this is important? I, I ask my kids, my students, what is the Torah standard for how well you're supposed to know things? Vishinantam levanacha, right? You have to teach it to your children how well. Rashi says, sheyehei mechudadim beficha. So well, it has to be so sharp in your mouth. Person asks you a question, don't start stuttering. And Marlo Miad, answer immediately. That's the Torah standard. And it's a high standard, but that's what it is. We can't apologize for that. So let's first acknowledge what we're trying to do. Is this a goal? And then it's all about systems. It's about systems. Every system is designed to produce exactly the results it produces. Let me say that one more time. Every system is designed to produce exactly the results it produces. So if this, what we have now, this current state, is what our system is producing, then there's something in the design of our school system and home life that is producing these results. If you want to change the results, you have to change the system. So what changes need to be made? And do you have the solutions? Okay, I, I don't want to present myself as some, you know... It's okay, we all know. <laughs> well, no, I, I'm not an expert here as a I, PSA. I, I don't know. I, I, I can I can have suggestions. But... What what are your suggestions? Okay. First of all, we need a measure. Does anyone have data? Meaning, let's say I'm the principal of an elementary school. So the first thing I would like to know is, what are my students' numbers for reading fluency at the end of every single school year? 
I need to operationally define my terms. What is fluency? How many words per minute? Do we allow for any errors? The answer really is no, right? Because fluency is a combination of accuracy and speed. So first is accuracy. We have to make sure they're reading correctly. And then we have to see how many words they read in a minute. If it's too slow, obviously that's not fluent. And are they hitting those markers? Step one. And since Dr. Scott Goldberg's dissertation was published, we know we have we have real information that students who are not good readers are at risk in terms of their whole religious identity. That's that's a fact. So this is extremely, extremely important. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, in general, we know that kids who are not good readers by the end of third grade are going to be at academic risk. But now we know that Hebrew reading is tied to religious identity and success, which makes sense because everything is reading. It drives me nuts when people start saying, well, that's history. That's that's science. Everything is a reading test. Every math question that's with words is a reading test. Yes, it's math, but that's, the kid has to be able to process the written word. You need to be good readers, both in English and in Hebrew. Now, what I'm talking about now is not even reading in terms of understanding in Hebrew. I'm talking about basic Kriya. That means every tefillah you say for the rest of your life, every parak of Tehillim that you, that you want to daven for someone, Anything that's unfamiliar to you, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, things that come up once a year. If you can't read, you're at a major, major disadvantage. I believe so strongly. You cannot think creatively about that which you do not know well. People say to me, why do you want kids to memorize things? It's ridiculous. You can look up anything. You cannot think creatively about that which you do not know well. What do you mean look it up? If they don't have a bank of Jewish knowledge in their heads, they won't know what to look up. They won't even know that there's a question about whatever it is that they're talking about. You need a foundation of information. Now, having said that, of course, everyone, no one knows everything, right? Okay, so what's included in basic education? That, I believe, we're ready now to launch a conference of principals and have that conversation together. That's a discussion. I might have my answers. You may have your answers. Can we come to a consensus? I think that's an important conversation to have, but we need need to measure it. We need data. I also think as um, an elementary school principal, I would want to call the schools that my students are applying to for high school and ask them, how are they doing on your entrance exams? It's not just a Jewish thing. I would want to know how they're doing in math. You know, for my students, I'll call different schools in Israel that they applied to where I I know people and ask how they do on those exams. I, I want to know how my students are doing. And very often I'll tweak what we're working on as a department in school based on those results. If my kids are weak on a particular skill, then I want to work harder with them. This is Laman Hashem. We want, we want our kids to be proud, to be knowledgeable, and to feel comfortable with their Judaism. I love how passionate you are. Well, you picked my passion project. <laughs> I did. Okay, is there anything else we'd like to add to the conversation, to this PSA? I just think parents are the consumers here. You're paying the bills. What do you want? And if I'm speaking, that's as speaking to another mother. They want to be able to afford to pay tuition. So what are you, what are you paying for? And I also think if I'm speaking to educators... I want to ring the fire alarm. I want us to... Now, it could be... I, I hope and I wish that my hundreds of results are anomalies and that the rest of... And I just happened upon... This is not a random sampling of the population. It's very possible that but I had... which cities have you sampled? In New York, a number of different schools. Um, we did a bunch in Chicago and some in New Jersey. Like, pretty... We're talking in-town communities, mostly. Bigger, density populations. Right. Can we move on to our second topic? You allow. Thank you so much for doing this. Okay, so the topic of the second conversation we're having today is your personal Jewish feminist crisis. Can we call it that? Sure. Okay, tell us about that. Okay, so growing up, 
I would say well into my 20s for sure. The role of women in Torah specifically was not something I was interested in at all. Almost like a reaction. I didn't want to be labeled a feminist. I'm not political at all. In general, I'm not political. And this just felt very political. And I love to learn Torah. And I love keeping mitzvot. And I just didn't want to entertain anything that would disturb my love of Torah and mitzvot. I just stayed far away from it. If there was a class, you know, women in Torah, I would say, can I please take Chomish Barashas? If there was a class, Sneas on the role of the woman, I would say, can I please take Hilchos Shabbos? You know, like, I, I just want to learn. And I don't want to really think about anything else. And I want to live my life as a Torah Jew. And that's really where I was. And I was comfortable there. In my 30s, when I went back to school, we had to write, we took a class in the history of Jewish education. And we had to produce a paper at the end of the semester. And there was a list of topics to choose from. And I really did not connect at all that this topic that I was choosing was going to lead me down any path that would make me uncomfortable. I took the history of Jewish women's education. Here I am, a Jewish woman educator. I said, let me learn a little bit about it. Harmless. Yeah. Let me learn a little about how this developed and how systems developed. And it was like falling down a rabbit hole. And I'll tell you why. And I'd like to put a little bit in context also if, if we have time. What I now know is a reaction to the feminist movement in the Western world in the last 50 years. In the mid-Hashkafic, mid down the middle schools, they love to teach girls that women are extra special. We are so much more than men. We don't need certain mitzvot because we're so much better. Okay? Whatever you want. That's to, the language. That's the language. I'm not saying that there aren't many, many statements of Chazal that are very positive about women. Of course there are. But what I began to realize as I started studying is that the line of separate but equal is simply not true in the eyes of halacha. Um, and when I would discuss it with my more learned, I would say, nephews, adults at the time, they kind of looked at me like, you're just discovering this now? The Mishnah says, if a man's drowning and a woman's drowning, you have to save the man because he's chayv and more mitzvot. I think that's a pretty extreme illustration of what I'm saying. Man's life is worth more in the eyes of halacha. And we could go on. The Shavuos, after I handed in that paper, I was in shul, I was listening to the Kriya Torah, and I heard it differently for the first time. The Pasuk says, Ata, Ubincha, Bitecha, Avdecha, Masacha, right? So who's Ata? Who is the voice that the Torah is speaking to? It's not me. It's you, the man, who has the son and the daughter and the maidservant and a wife. The you that the Torah is speaking to is you, the man, and it hurt. It hurt a lot. To face that was very, very painful. And suddenly, I saw a lot of things differently. Like, some of them are just social. For example, mechitza, yes, that's halachic. But let's say, does your shul have the same entrance for men and women? And even if it's a separate entrance, are the entrances the same? Or are the men going through the main door and the women go through the side door? Does that have anything to do with halacha? No. But that messaging is very clear. It's really, you can come. You, you can also be here. But you're not the main event. And the truth is you're not. But do you want to live inside those parameters is the question. So that's like a social thing. There are many shuls that don't have that. But it, it could potentially be. And I, I think about it this way. The Torah has always had its approach. We have always valued women. That's true. That's a fact. There have been many cultures in the ancient world that did not value women at all. We were different. We did value women. Women are moral agents. And we know that and the halakha acknowledges it and it's the truth. But it's, we're also not the same. And I don't mean the same doing the same thing. I mean even of equal value. What we are doing is in the helper role. 
to facilitate the goal, which is not ours. We can participate as much as we'd like to a certain extent, but it's limited. And to face that reality killed me. Now, here I am, a Chumash teacher in my 30s. The last thing I ever would want to do is to give my students a crisis of faith. So, of course, and I never really touched it before either, so I still didn't touch the issue now. But you were having a crisis of faith. But I was having my own crisis of faith. I had, I had to deal with my feelings around this new understanding. In a sense, I think the more yeshivish schools perhaps teach it a bit better because they're a little more honest with the kids earlier. And I think the girls already see themselves. Certainly in the Hasidic world, they, they definitely see themselves that way. They don't question it. In the education I had, I really thought we're all equal in the eyes of halacha. No, no we're not. Okay, so can you illustrate some more, give me more examples of how, like what areas are upsetting? And I understand as much as I involve myself in uh, certain realities, I like to, as you said, as a young pre-year doctorate program, you just avoided them. I don't know if it was conscious or subconscious. We just stayed away from those classes or those thoughts. And that's really how I sort of go about my Judaism. I avoid things that make the realities uncomfortable or difficult. As a Chumash teacher, as someone who lives in Muncie, can you share some more examples of this dissonance that you have to live with? And then tell us how you found a ground that you feel okay with. I think because I am a teacher, one of the unique spaces for Jewish Orthodox women to have a voice is in schools. This is true in Beis Yaakov, as far, you know, in, in all in all segments of our population. And it's been like this for a long time. One question I would ask is, who controls the money? Is that a man or is that a woman? Even in schools where the women are, you know, making the decisions educationally, typically they're not making the financial decisions, but not always. But at least that's a place where women have, have a voice. You know, that's the only platform. That's kosher. That's right. My heart is in my classroom. I love learning Torah with my students. It's my absolute favorite thing to do. And I feel that it's a real blessing in my life that I, I have that space, that creative space to learn with them and learn from them and to continue my own journey. You know, what I see so often around me with smart Jewish women is that they choose to find their way outside of the world of Torah. They really come to grips with the fact that they will never be anything great and they'll become lawyers or they'll become doctors or PAs and they'll they'll do something else. They're not going to contribute in this way. I think it's less of a an issue for a lot of women don't don't mind. They're very happy to embrace doing chesed as an outlet or saying tehillim as an outlet. Like for me, just the learning has always been where what I love. I remember once we had a guest and she said, knowing you, I'm so shocked that you serve such a beautiful Shabbos meal. Like, I would have thought you just, like, throw out a few. So I said, why would you think that? She said, because you love to learn. Like, I wouldn't think you also know how to run a house. Because men make it look like it's one or the other. <laughs> like, like, she was surprised Somehow. that I, I would, I would I, and I was, like, I was really hurt. Like, like I, I have made my home and my children the priority in my life, my husband's career, his growth. Everything has really been, you know, for me, primary. When my kids were little, I worked only when they were in school or at the Ganenet because I want to be the mother. And I want to be here saying moda'ani and making brachos. And I wanted that very badly. And I, and I, I embrace it. I believe in it. So that's still true. But being able to learn 
in my community is not really valued for women. That's hard for me. I've heard women say, like, what are you even talking about? Some of my teachers might know my favorite place is to hang out in the teacher's room. I love those conversations. We could talk endlessly about Korea scans and how to teach this Ramban. And I love it. But I know that it makes me a little weird. That's not really normal. But in more modern Orthodox communities, you may not have that distance at all because it's so accepted right? to learn Gemara and to love learning. Exactly. So those social pieces in modern Orthodox communities are less so. And I think they have a different issue, which is accepting any limits. Meaning if I was raised to actually believe fully in my equality, why should I accept anything? I, I remember speaking to a teacher at a conference once who teaches in a very popular co-ed high school. And I asked him, with everything being equal, why do your girls like, why are they willing to sit behind the machitza during davening? So he looked at me and he said, I don't have anybody who even wants to daven. And that really depressed me. I hope, I hope he was exaggerating. I, I really, really do. And I'm sure he was, didn't mean it 100% seriously. But by saying we're so open-minded that we've lost our passion. Everyone's doing everything together and everyone can do it, what they want. But that's one piece of it. And, and then I think the other piece is those women perhaps aren't even aware of the things that I became aware of as an adult. I wonder how many of them have learned that Mishnah, plus a million other things. And then one thing that really bothers me is I hear them saying, well, that's what they said then. Doesn't mean we have to say it today. Well, if you're going to be so dismissive about these statements, why not? Well, how can you take the other statements seriously? If you're so passionate about learning Torah, about learning Gemara, about learning what the Tanam and Amoraim say, well, then you have to take it seriously also. This is real. This is part of our Masorah. And now, as for myself, I, first of all, I calm down. Because And I give my husband a lot of credit for it. I think because in my home I feel so safe, I'm fine, I'm okay. I think a woman who would have a more challenging marriage, I think, would be, could become very angry, you know, with this experience. And for me, So what would that look like, a more challenging marriage? Why do you need this? Why do you want this? Why can't you just question yeah, like that? I think a lot of men would be very put off. I think I was even put off by myself, I'll be honest. It was annoying. Like, why, why is this your problem? And I, you know, I've had, I heard people saying, you have, you have, you have kids to be in your house. Like, you can't talk about this. You're going to give them issues. Suck it up. And I, I said to my kids, like, Emunah's real. If you're going to connect with the Masora, you have to have your own journey. Each and every one of us are going to struggle with the things we struggle with. And struggling's okay. Struggling's okay. There's a line, if you want, I can read it to you. Ivan Lichtenstein wrote an article that one of my teachers actually just showed to me recently. The name of the article is The Source of Faith is Faith Itself. And he describes dealing with his own questions and, hang on, it's worth it to get the exact words. Clearly, however, faith cannot be contingent upon having all the answers. And his point is you have to be okay with having questions. And I think that's the place I came to. Honestly, it's not such a question. I think Jewish women are the reason why we are where we are 3,000 years later. The system works. What did your discovery like when you had that crisis or realization, what did that look like for you besides for just having conversations at home with everyone about this? Like how bad did it get? I think a huge piece of it was having my family members see the issue. So initially people started saying, as if I'm crazy, you're wrong. I remember being at a conference and it was um, primarily modern Orthodox teachers. And we had to do a, they put us, they do this all the time. They put you into groups and you had to produce something. So we had to pick a project topic. 
the one teacher said, let's do the topic of how people think that Judaism puts women second, but it's not true. So this is literally at the height of my, so I just shot across the table. It is true. The Mishnah says that if a man's journey and a woman's journey, you have to save the man. His life is worth more. So there was someone else in the group who looked at me, someone I really respected. And he said, I would never hire you to teach in my school. And I felt my heart squeeze in pain. Like, you'll never inspire anyone if you, that's what you're saying. It was devastating to me, that feeling of, you're so crazy. And people in my family, too. Until it was very, very helpful when some of them validated me and just said, you're right. It is this. It, what you're seeing is accurate. I cannot tell you how many Revitsons have gone crazy on me. It's not true. We are separate but equal. No, we're not. Just the admission of the, of the truth. Listen, I'm not talking here about objectively in Hashem's eyes, what is the value of our neshamos? That I cannot say. Are there male neshamos and female neshamos in the Ola Muhammad? How will it be? I don't know. That we don't know. But the way our religion is structured, it has a very particular hierarchy. You know, I think so often the, in the Sefer Baruch Shamar, written by Rabbi Halevi Epstein, he was the nephew of the Nitziv, and he describes living in their house, the Nitziv and his wife, how the Nitziv's first wife, she, she used to learn all day with sparring piled all over. And I apologize if I'm misquoting because I haven't looked at this in quite a while, but something to the effect of she would be so angry that a man who didn't know anything, and she knew 10 times more, would say the bracha, bracha Hashem, and she would have to say amen. It hurt her. Just to know there was a woman out there who said that, that made me feel so much better. And I'll be honest with you, in today's world, it's become somewhat easier to accept gender roles. I think the world as a whole is really pushing back and struggling with what does it mean to be a man, what does it mean to be a woman. And once again, the Torah is sticking with its definitions. In an ancient world where they said women were sex objects or they didn't have any mind or of their own, we said otherwise. And in a modern world where they say men are women and women are men and it's all the same, we say no, it's not. And it wasn't popular then and it's not popular now. It's a timeless Torah. Yeah, yeah. Ask me a question. No, did I did I answer your question? Yes, you answered my question. You illustrated it so beautifully. <laughs> I just want more. <laughs> but, but for me, that was a big thing. But why do, why was I so reluctant to come on? Because all those women today that are that think that it is equal, and if they'll listen to this, and then they'll be devastated. You don't want to open up cans of worms for other women. Absolutely not. So, do you wish you didn't expose yourself to this? No, I think it was an important part of my own journey to where I am now. I think without struggle, what is it? Not to say, listen, the Sifri Musar talk about Amun of Shuta versus Amun of Bechakira, right? Two different concepts. There is such a thing as Amun of Shuta. Certainly, a lonely man of faith, right? Of Salvechik. We have to engage. I remember at the, at the height of the crisis, I remember saying, why do I have to care so much? So many people just don't care. They do other things. They don't care. Why is it bothering me so much? But I think we Are have you to able care. to answer that question? I think I came to just accept this is who I am, and that's okay. I love to learn. I hope I have found comrades in arms. I love to schmooze with women who love to learn and talk about interesting things. And, and I, I'm much happier now with that, with that peace. I don't feel so lonely inside of it. When you find other people that are okay with you the way you are, I think it's very validating. Yeah. And that's really why and I give Kivi a lot of credit, because even when I was at the height of my fury, he was always okay with me being who I was. You bring this passion that's lacking 
in a lot of the educational systems back. That's so sweet right? of you. Thank you. I hope so. I, I, I want all of our this students. This is why you care. <laughs> this is why you care because we need more people like you instilling this into the next generation. But I, I hope so. I mean, your reaction of saying that is much more comforting to me than the rabbi who said I would never hire you. Yeah. <laughs> who knows how challenged his marriage <laughs> maybe his wife is also having but I'm telling you day. I liked him it sliced me He's, I, I can still feel it because this, he runs a school that I could technically see myself working in now I just said one I just spoke something that I thought I mean it's true and that's your reaction you want to throw me out you say I'm not a role model for anyone else you wouldn't let me near your students that hurt and in school today again I still don't bring it up on occasion, when a topic will come up, the most I'll say is, I'm not going to make apologetics. I'm not going to apologize on behalf of the Torah or try to make it say what it doesn't say. The Torah has a very clear voice and it speaks for itself. And that's fine. We have to do the work of adjusting ourselves. You know the line, you can't break the law. You can only break yourself against the law. It is what it is. Each and every one of us have to adjust and make... We can't turn into lobbyists. Uh -huh. There you go. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. What are some of the hottest or most concerning issues facing our communities today? Besides for widespread ignorance? Yeah, exactly. Forgive me. And I, I hope, I, I really don't want to, I'm so afraid. I don't think it's that bad, what you're saying. Okay. I, 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 I find I it frightening when I, what I see in terms of, of lack of knowledge and, and basic skills. By bad, I mean I'm not employed by high school principals. <laughs> so I don't have to be worried about losing my job. <laughs> um, no, I think you're, you want to raise the standards and you're speaking out to the consumers who are the parents and school leadership who listen to this podcast. I think we, we definitely have a crisis in that. And it's not, I'm not the first one to bring it up, but we need teachers. We need teachers majorly. I read an amazing article. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal. He was talking about Stop saying there's a teacher crisis. If you wanted to find a babysitter for $2.50 and you couldn't find one, you wouldn't say there's a babysitter shortage. <laughs> you would pay more. You wouldn't leave your child at home with the dog and say, I'm out. <laughs> like We as a community are certainly facing that crisis. We need our best and brightest to go into this field. Our best and brightest, our most talented, our most passionate. And the modern Orthodox community, do you want people with other hashkafos raising your children? Or do you want people who embody your values teaching your children? That's a very big question that we need to be asking ourselves. And what hashkafos do you embody because you teach in several different schools? I don't know that I, I would put myself in a box in that way. Okay. I, I think that's what I mean when I say I, I love teaching Chumash because I think the Chumash has its own voice. Our Masora has a voice. I try as much as possible to keep my own voice out of it. Let it speak for itself. And you do that with your teaching? which is why I enjoy learning from you. I hope so. I try you. to. Uh, do you want to look over your notes and see if there's anything else you wanted to mention that you prepared? I mean, the main thing that I wanted to come across is just, I didn't want to come across as having an agenda, not, not with either discussion that we had. It's not an agenda of, of attack in the first issue. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's not an agenda at all. I, I obviously want, I want to see change, but I don't want to come across like I'm attacking anyone. I want to say we're all in it together. We're in the trenches. I'm proud of anybody who chooses to be a teacher, who loves it, who puts their heart and soul into it. Teachers are amazing people, and they deserve all the credit in the world for what they do. It's the most rewarding job ever. I say, if, if you don't want to do it, I would never try to talk someone into it. But someone who has a passion for it, you never go to work a day in your life. I have a blast. Serious. Like, I look forward to learning with my students every single day. 
it's not coming from that, you know, me against you place. It's coming from a me with you place. Like, can we as a community do better? And certainly in terms of the other issue, like, I, I don't have a feminist agenda per se. But I also don't want our girls squished into a place where they feel uncomfortable or being told something that's not true. So I think we have to tell the truth. And then there are going to be girls, and there always have been, and there always were, girls who needed a little more. And we should be providing that for them. I don't think we have to force everyone to do the same thing. But there need to be opportunities in all communities. This reminds me of a discussion we had at your Shabbos table, actually where I think you quoted my mother saying that the Jewish day school is the absolute minimum, right? Is that something my mother said? And what her point was, always be ready to supplement. You always have to, if you want the kids to soar, you know, be sure to provide those opportunities outside of school. Don't, don't think Rely. I paid the tuition and now it's done. And, and she's right to a certain extent for some students, certainly. But I just think if our kids are in school the majority of their day, for the majority of the year, until they are minimum 18 years old, we can do a little better. That's not to say that I don't think we're doing a great job with the things we are doing. There are certainly challenges that we need to address. But we always had supplemented education, but also our base foundation school was public. Right. It was state-funded. So, But certainly the way your mother provided extra opportunities, and your father, obviously, was always inspiring to me, for sure. She gave, And not just in learning in music or dance or giving them outlets. I wish our schools could provide it in a more formal way. You know, not just parents who have money to, you know, provide it. But I think it comes down to money at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> or, or th but there are things that are free. I mean, this is a whole separate conversation. Rampant obesity in schools and in, in our population. I mean, 40% of Americans are now obese. Why aren't our kids, you know, in a formal way, they could, um, let's say, run a mile every single day. And keep their own time on their own clock. So if today I ran it in 15 minutes, and by the end of the year, can I get down to a 10-minute mile? If I ran a mile every, every morning or in the middle of the day before I eat my lunch. Looking at the child as a whole person, not just the academic piece of them, and not just, I think we've gotten a lot better at the social-emotional piece. The physical piece is huge also. Why are you giving out soda cans as a prize? That's not a prize. You just hyped up their brains on sugar, their insulin went shot through the roof to deal with it. I think it's a whole nother, it's a whole additional concern, but a piece that in terms of you asked about big challenges, that's why it was on my mind. In terms of a community, you know, the meals that we serve, the kiddish, I mean, other people have raised this also. It's really, really hard. It's really, really hard to grow up in our community and, and stay on top of it. And I'm not, I'm not, not at all, Chas I'm saying to make fun of anybody ever. That's never okay. I'm talking about long-term health, doing everything we can to maximize the gifts that Hashem has given us both in our clarity of thought and the way our brains work and in our physical bodies, which smart them mode. We have to be really, really vigilant. And I don't know that we are supporting that mission as academic institutions. I don't know that we've taken that piece on. I think we're afraid to touch it. Wow. Thank you so much. This has been very enjoyable and enlightening and real. And that's what I like to do here. Thank you for having me. Great to schmooze with you as always. Thank you for sticking around until the end. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to sponsor a future episode, please do reach out. And I'd love to see you in the WhatsApp group. So if you'd like to join, message me. And do not hesitate to message me. Do not hesitate to sponsor. And do not hesitate to share this podcast on your family chats, on your friend chats. And see you next time. Next time.